Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let's continue worshiping together by turning in the Bible you have to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be finishing our semester-long course. We made it into the summer a little bit, but you know what I mean. 1 Peter 5, these last three verses, verses 12 through 14. There you see that Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess now that every ounce of efficacy in ministry, every ounce of efficacy we need to be the people of your word, to be faithful to the call that you have laid upon us through 1 Peter. Every ounce of that belongs to you. And so please, in your great mercy towards us, give the Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of your word and let your word reign in the midst of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the 2004 film, Troy, uh, the Greeks allied for the glory of a glory-hungry king under the cover of recovering Helen for the king's brother. They took the beach of Troy to make war against them. But in uh, one of the main battle scenes, uh, it becomes clear that Troy's army, not the Greek army, but Troy's army, is far more equipped and far more disciplined to win that battle. They made, as it were, this sort of armored wall. I don't know if you've seen the film. They have all these shields laid out in front of them that stretch for what seems like a mile. Okay, so this armored wall that refuses to give, refuses to budge. Uh, they, They cannot penetrate the wall. And they begin to then progress and move up the field in unison, a wall. And so they eventually take the field. They win that particular battle. It appeared that advancing forward to victory demanded a resolve to stand firm like a wall in the midst of the battle. And this is no less the case when it comes to fighting the good fight of faith. It's no less the case when it comes to advancing God's kingdom in a world 
opposed. If we would be what God has called us to be in this letter, which is that army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness, we must be ready, as Peter says here, to stand firm as a spiritually armored wall that refuses to give on the true grace of God. Progressing forward, he says, in unison toward an already achieved victory. The victory we have in Christ. And so, beloved, 1 Peter has largely been about the nature and purpose of a true church. A church that has been possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that will then image His grace and embody His truth and reflect His heart and mediate His gospel to the world and endure any cross that we have to meet with in that way as those who are destined for His glory. This is the Bible's kind of church. And as it is, isn't it the kind of church that we ought to want to be? One that cannot be moved off of His call. And my earnest prayer then this morning is that the Holy Spirit would not allow us to leave this great letter without a great grasp of the church and her calling in this world to stand firm in the true grace of God. This has been Peter's emphasis throughout the entirety of the letter and we take it up again this morning in Peter's final exhortation here and thankfully he gives us a few more pillars of support for the task. So, let's deal first with Peter's closing exhortation. You find it, if you look at verse 12 there, toward the end of the verse, where Peter describes what he's laid out for us in this letter as, quote, the true grace of God. And then comes the the exhortation. You see it there. Stand firm in it. So we need to settle, what is the true grace of God? What does Peter mean by that? And further then, what does it mean for us to stand firm in it? To stand firm in the true grace of God. So let's just take those now in turn. As I understand it, uh, Peter is pulling together two things that will be inseparable for a faithful church as he counts one. For one, there's the one gospel message. The one gospel message. That word from God to sinners about His grace in Jesus. And first Peter has really just covered the full gamut of this for us. He's cast our minds. You remember this from the very beginning of the letter. He's cast our minds upon our election in eternity past. How the Father, knowing full well the hell-deserving sinners we'd be, yet chose us in Christ to be the heirs of His free, flowing mercy, His unobligated pity His sovereign grace unto His eternal glory. We are His elect exiles. And as we said at the first, so now again, God's electing love, this chief grace, comes complete with every other grace needful and useful for our time and eternity. And none greater than the grace of Christ Himself as it was also in His blood, chapter 1, verse 2, that the Father invested every single saving grace that we would ever need. And so, according to the Scriptures itself, this inestimable grace, the Spirit, remember, He gave His sketch of Christ, and then to the awe of angels, Christ came into the world. 
to us. And for us then, Christ put himself under God's law. And Peter tells us, chapter 1 verse 19, chapter 2 verse 22, that Christ obeyed that law without blemish. He committed no sin. And so he became this able sacrifice for our sins, as well as the righteousness, that perfect righteousness that we, of course, completely lacked. And then, in continuance of his now dimension-exploding love, he completed his suffering for us by bearing our sins, as Peter put it, on the tree. That is, on the cross. And by this great act, he made a full, not a partial, but a full atonement For us. Oh, our sins. Whatever their number. Do you hear me? Whatever their number. Whatever their depravity. Whatever our guilt. Jesus paid it all. We were under the wrath of God. And Jesus willingly went under it. As us. To bring us out from under it. And that he did, Peter tells us, once for all time. And having done it, he then laid down his life that he might take it up again to lavish his beloved with the grace that had been stored up for them from before the foundation of the world. And so chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 3 verse 18, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph, chapter 3, verse 22, over his foes and our foes, including our own selves and sin and Satan and death and hell and this world and its present evil age. And at the appointed time then, again, when we were six feet under in sin and moral filth as godless and graceless, trusting nothing but ourselves, the God of all grace, brought us face to face with the gospel of grace and by it, our eternal salvation. We heard about Jesus and his redeeming love. And grace landed in converting power. And in an instant, chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit laid claim to you. We were, chapter 2, verse 9, effectually called. And chapter 1, verse 3 then, born again. We were made Believers, we obeyed the gospel. We died to sin, chapter 2, verse 24, and came alive, he says, to righteousness. We were reconciled to God and adopted, chapter 1, verse 14, into his family, and we became then the visible heirs of the new covenant promises of God. All of them, our sins, were forgiven. Our shame gave way to honor. Our old self bowed out to a new creation. Our warring succumbed to His love. Our fears were replaced with His peace. Our waywardness in the world passed away at the apprehension of this chief shepherd as our hell then also evaporated before us in the irrevocable transition to heirs of the grace of life imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, just as God is also keeping you for it, how He does care for you. 
Oh, beloved, has he not divinely loved you? And it's all grace. (laughs) The true grace of God. Which I must remind us is the great apologetic for the true gospel. Indeed, for real Christianity. There's never been a person yet in the history of the world to naturally conceive of the salvation of sinners by the grace of God manifest in Christ crucified, then raised from the dead, not one. We are, we will, by nature, contend to the death, good people, quite capable of putting God Almighty into our own debt. And in point of fact, come hell or high water, we cannot be convinced to the contrary without a divine and supernatural work of grace in our hearts. And that alone ought to be enough to convince us to throw off all other hopes and understand ourselves as Christians to be nothing less than the very blessed of God by grace. He's brought us to trust in the only wisdom that can save the soul for all eternity. And that is the true grace of God to us in Jesus. Crucified and risen. So, there is the one gospel message. And inseparably, there is now the collective gospel messenger. By which I just mean the church. And this too, Peter means to include in those words, the true grace of God. He means not just the gospel message, but also the mission and the manner of the people that the message of the gospel makes. Can we be the heirs of such grace in Christ and be anything other than the peculiar people of Christ in this world? Which is what God's called us and purposed us to be. He called us, chapter 2, verse 9, out of darkness, remember? And into His marvelous light. Why? That we might be not just an individual Christian, not just a Christian in isolation, but a people, a family, a church, you might say a collect of elect, who above all frame and proclaim not our own excellencies, but His excellencies in Christ. And so to that end, chapter 1, verse 22, it's that we might love one another here. It's that we might love one another here as Christ has loved us. It's that we might lay down our lives, chapter 2, verse 5, that others might taste of His grace. It's that we might labor, chapter 3, verse 8, to keep bound what Christ has bound. That we'll fight for the for the unity that He's given us through the Gospel. It's that we might run chapter 2, verse 12 in such a way that we verify Christ really is coming back. He is really returning. It's that we might do good and honor all and fear God and be the very best of citizens and the very best of spouses and the very best friend even of our enemies. You remember all that? It's that we might display the cross following in the footsteps 
of Christ. It's that we might not join in that flood of debauchery all around us right now. It's that we might surprise those who are enslaved to sin and be holy as God is holy, chapter 1. And in it all, it's that we be prepared, chapter 3, verse 15, to gently give a defense for the hope that is within us. And thus, theme of all themes, is that as the world then rejects us and rebukes us and rages against us, however maliciously they might do that, we might entrust our souls to a faithful creator and continue on in his way. It's that we would stand firm in the true grace of God. Now, what does that entail for us? Well, as it holds every truth we need for standing firm, it entails an abiding determination or resolve on our part to stand firm in the message of the gospel. If we're going to be what God has called us to be, we can't ever leave or reduce or sideline or corrupt the gospel by which he called us at the first. So to be firm and stand firm as a church, we must be and stand firm in all the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. And while I hope that sounds so obvious to us, so as to seem superfluous, unnecessary to say, we cannot ever assume the gospel as a church. An assumed gospel is destined to be an abandoned one. And many churches, in many ways, and to varying degrees, are doing just this, and by it, they're sowing the seeds of their own uselessness, and perhaps even their own apostasy from Jesus. You see, where a church is not repeatedly, week after week, Lord's Day, after Lord's Day, rooted in and fixated on the gospel, where she's not continually recentered and captivated by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be tempted to give ground. To give tomorrow's mile its inch today. To disconnect Christ from life. Christ from priority. Christ from our families, Christ from our commission, Christ from our community, Christ from church, Christ from, where does it lead? Christ from salvation? We will be inclined to spare ourselves the trouble of standing firm. To prefer the birds and the rocks and the thorns that abort the word in our hearts. To go the wide route of Judas and Demas and all those who are in the lion's mouth. To temper the truth. To doctor sound doctrine. To make it less offensive, 
more amenable to temporal security, to adulterate it with the world's ideologies, to put the whole Christ that the world needs to see under a basket of jollies and sweets and scandals and in a word to forfeit something infinitely more beautiful than Helen of Troy ever dreamed of being. And that's the smile of God. And the pleasure of Jesus. And the surety of the Holy Spirit. And with it, maybe even our very own souls might be forfeited. And so, beloved, we must stand firm in all that Peter means by the true grace of God. We must stand firm in the one gospel message and we must stand firm as the collective messenger of that one gospel. That's Peter's closing exhortation for us. And thankfully, in the way of endurance, he's given some pillars to support us that we now get to systematically unearth will bear with me. So, we'll begin in verse 12 with steadfast Silas, here called Silvanus, a faithful brother as I, the apostle Peter, regard him. Uh, Silas, to let you know, uh, was a man commended by the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, from the beginning of the gospel. He was a leading brother, it says. You can all see all this in Acts chapters 15, 16, 17, a little bit of 18. He was a leading brother who became a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, whom, interestingly, Paul handpicked Silas over Mark, who's in our text, for getting the gospel out to the world. And uh, it's in that service uh, that we can truly come to terms a bit with the spiritual steel of Silas. You see, it was Silas, you may remember this, it was Silas who was with Paul in Philippi when, for disrupting Satan's grip on that society by the open testimony of the gospel, they both of them were stripped and shamed and then beaten repeatedly with rods and then what? Imprisoned. Thrown in jail. And how do they respond to that? You remember? They responded rather famously in the jail cell by praying and singing hymns to God in view of the prisoners and a prison guard who, through a providence of God whereby then all the prisoners were set free, they then led to Jesus from the brink of suicide. What must I do to be saved? <laughs> and that... Prison guard then was set free himself from his sins. Due in large measure to Paul and Silas's hope in God amid their hardships for Christ. And does that not echo the message we've received in 1 Peter? Well, in fact, it's by one who sang to God notwithstanding every stripe of the world's rod that Peter has written. 
It's Silas's bruised eyes that have served as the editorial eye, this is amazing, for the content of this letter. All that's in it about the true grace of God, the message and the mission and manner of the messenger was approved by Silas, who, not Superman, Silas, he's the real man of steel. Silas is one who stood firm in the true grace of God. And as such, he adds, as if Peter needed it, even more weight and more credibility to Peter's instructions. Uh, Silas believed in Christ and preached Christ. And then Silas bled for Christ and preached Christ. As far as we know, never wavered in his devotion to Jesus. From start to finish, Silas was steadfast as a pillar and model for us. But you say now, (laughs) what a standard to uphold. I've already failed at it. So what now? Well, verse 13, let's come and unearth messed up Mark. Steadfast Silas and messed up Mark. For whom I am profoundly thankful. Because whereas some are Silas's from the word believe, most, I'd venture, are Mark's. Mark's need time to ripen on the vine. Uh, They need more frequent care and patient pruning to grow into a Silas, into what Peter has called us all to be in this letter. You may remember this. Again, Mark had a very inauspicious start. He was, in Acts chapter 13, also a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, like Silas. But you may know that once they came to a place called Pamphylia, Mark, he's called John in the text there, but Mark had left them. He left them. And we could perhaps imagine uh, reasonable scenarios for his departure, except that you then come to Acts chapter 15, I believe it's the end of that chapter, and clearly there's some um, missionary consternation over the use of Mark. They want to go about rallying the churches that have been planted, and Barnabas, he wants to take Mark with them. And Paul says, no. What if Paul said that about you? No. And he says no because he thought it best not to take one with them, it says, who had formerly deserted them and the work of the gospel. So it appears that Mark's departure had to do with a spiritual failure in the field. That he withdrew, like Peter, at the cross when the cost of public identification with Jesus got costly. But at any rate, in Paul's eyes, Mark did not measure up for missionary service at that time because he had shown conduct unbecoming of God's call. And by unbecoming conduct, I don't mean grievous worldliness, but more likely, something that hits us all. Cowardice. 
When the going got tough for Jesus, Mark ran home to his mama. Literally, uh, his, his mom housed the church in Jerusalem. Given all of that, Mark's always been one of my favorite characters. Here's why. He grows up. And you see it in the scriptures. He becomes later what he was not at first. He's biblical proof of the grace that is the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work such that here, Peter, and now aged apostle, calls him his son. I think he means son in the faith. And Paul, this is so great, so thankful the Holy Spirit did this for us. Paul, who had earlier rejected Mark's application for missionary service, says in his last hours, right before he's about to have his head cut off for Jesus, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, go get Mark. Isn't that great? Go get Mark and bring him with you because, he says, he is now very useful for me for ministry. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? It's certainly instructive. Beloved, we will not be perfect in the Christic courage to which Peter has called us in this letter. We have, I think all of us would confess, willfully avoided even the hint of trouble for Jesus, skirting around evangelistic opportunities, blending in with the world, throwing a cover over the radiance of Christ. And yet, Jesus does not blacklist us. Even what the Apostle Paul set aside, the Lord Jesus stayed beside. He loved Mark, and he kept Mark, and over time, he made Mark very useful for the sake of his gospel. Point being, if we fail to stand firm with Jesus, Jesus will not fail to stand firm with us, to firm us up and make us faithful. And in that, in that, I do think we need to learn to be slow, like really slow, to dispense of one another when we mess up. We are all sheep that stray, but who have a chief shepherd committed long-term to making us the very thing he's called us to be. But next, see we have not only individual pillars, Silas, Mark, but assembly pillars. And first, verse 13, this chosen she at Babylon. What's going on there? What in the world's going on? Uh, basically, okay, we'll be real quick with it. Israel, you remember in the Old Testament, 
was in exile. What are we? We're God's elect exiles. Israel was in exile in Babylon. What Peter's doing here is he's borrowing that name, that title, Babylon, to refer to the exilic state of another local church, likely in Rome. And she, by the way, she, a common title for a church, the bride of Christ, is, he says, likewise chosen. That is, like the believers in these churches in Asia Minor. Okay? So Peter, if you're artsy, you like Peter here. You know, like Peter's being artsy, if only to let his audience know once more, they are not alone in the world. Nor in the call, but are part of a broader priestly family of God. That this other church, probably again in Rome, sends their greetings, says, we're with you. We're with you in the fight. God has not singled you out. We're all engaged in the same conflict. There is a cross in our calling. Don't recoil from it. Rejoice in it. We are bearing our cross for Jesus. You bear your cross for Jesus. And we will see you at the finish line. There is a galvanizing effect for Elijah-like churches in the discovery that they're not alone in the world. But God is working in countless ways for His glory in the global church, ways in which we just hardly stop to just see and think and consider. Right? Things get slim and dark for us and we just fall apart. We assume that's that. But it's not. But it's not. Far from it, God's elect exiles are being assembled all over the world in far harder climates for the sake of the gospel than the one that we're in. And they say to us in a spurring way, greetings. And so whereas there's steel in Silas, pillar, and solace in Mark, another pillar, there's a Simon of Cyrene or a Sam Gamgee, or a hopeful in the chosen she at Babylon. We're in this with you. We want you to know we're in this with you all the way to the end. And as sweet as that is, it's sweeter still to find that sentiment in our local And so verse 14, Peter, inching to the close, pulls them in again and establishes the pillar that is the loving local church. Greet, what does he say? Greet them, no. Greet one another, he says. With the kiss of love. And though everybody's always drawn to the kissing thing, 
Let's not miss the forest for the cultural trees. Peter just means, as one put it, that, quote, the love between members of a church should be comparable to the love that exists in a healthy family. Beloved, uh, Peter cannot be more relentless in pursuit of this reality. That we love one another. Now, no question. My family experiences relational rifts throughout the day. But, we do try to make a point of tying it all up in love by nightfall. We want our fellowship to be rich, and we want it to be right, and as necessary, we want it to be restored. We do not want to be disassociates. We want to be there for one another. And that's all Peter's desire for this supernatural family of God. That love begin, that's why it says, greet one another with the kiss of love. That love begin, and so then define all of our fellowship. Why? Why is this important? It's important because we need each other to stand firm. One Trojan soldier with a shield would have gotten crushed by the Greek army. But as they stood firm together, they advanced to victory. We're better together. And love, here's the thing, love is what holds us together. Understand, that whereas we can still gather quite freely in South Carolina to worship God, this was a costly prospect in Peter's day as it is for many believers outside of the states today. But nonetheless, amid all of the fiery trials, amid all the cost of doing it, Peter assumes their fellowship, they're gathering together, they're greeting one another to these Christians and for these Christians, listen please, gathering with the saints on a regular basis was worth all the trials attending it. All of them. That's amazing. There's no Lord willing in the creek don't rise, I'll see ya. It's nothing. Not insults, not shaming, not slander, not beatings. Nothing will keep me from gathering with God's elect exiles. Nothing. I will swim through the creek, however high, just to be in the company I love best because God wills it. It's part of my publicly identifying with Jesus. And besides, I know I need that company. Desperately. I 
I need those I trust to love me when the world makes a mockery of me. To give me rest when the battle rages. To be my security when I slip toward the lion's mouth. To be my company in difficulty, my accountability in being holy, my sanctuary with whom I do ministry. To be not the place, but the people I can go to and know we are in this together. (laughs) We are for each other. Our hearts are bound in being the embodiment of the truth and grace and love and overall culture of Jesus, the very body of Christ. And as such... Our perseverance is tied to this pillar. We need the healthy local church in order to stand firm in the true grace of God. So beloved, have a look at our membership roster and pray. We're the ones God's given us at the present time to support each of us all the way home to heaven. And I, for one, am so grateful for you. I would not make it without you. You, please understand are God's ordained means of holding me fast for heaven. Please understand, you are God's ordained means of a regular meeting for me with Jesus. His heart, His mind, His mouth, His hands, His feet, His ears, His tears, which all keep me and guard me, and stir me up, and lock me in for the long haul to glory. I love you. And I need you. And we need each other. To love each other. As the body of Christ. And so there are the pillars of steadfastness, and soulless global affinity and brotherly love. There's Silas and Mark and the she and you. But atop all of it, there's the pillar of peace in Christ. And so at the end of all, Peter prays, peace To all of you who are in Christ. A critical close to this great, great letter. For no matter how hard we try to make and then keep peace in this world, fact remains we are God's elect exiles for a reason. And with that identity, stress of all kinds is assumed. It's spiritual wartime now. And yet, 
the way Peter closes is this. We battle at all times with this living flame of peace in our hearts. By the grace of Christ, we have peace with God. The hardest kind of peace to have, we have. We have peace with God, a peace the world cannot comprehend, a peace that steadies us for Jesus, though all the world afflict. It just needs oil. And it will flame up. And so Peter's given us no shortage of oil. When the fiery trial is overwhelmingly hot and you sense your nerves are being shot and you are tempted hard to give your ground for Christ, just set your minds on these several things that we have seen in 1 Peter that God has never not loved you. That He will never neglect His elect. That He will never forsake those for whom Christ died. That Christ did not shed His blood but to do you anything other than everlasting good. That for every trial, God's pledged His care. God's pledged His power. God's pledged His character. God's pledged His presence by way of the Holy Spirit to comfort you and to convince you beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are still mine and glory is yet yours. That the heavenly inheritance, again, is being kept for me and I am being guarded for it. That the God of all grace cares for me. And so the victory has to be sure. That though I were one of eight believers in all the world as Noah was, as I am in the ark, I have the victory. That God who cannot lie or fail has promised that victory to me. And that already as Christ has been raised from the dead, every moment which I feel in my new life, I have the assurance of that victory. I see Him on the throne with every enemy beneath. I see His trajectory of life from the cross to the crown. And I know, I know it cannot be loss to take His way of the cross. My share in Christ's sufferings are only for a little while. And after it, God Himself, who's ordained it all, will vindicate me and welcome me into His eternal Glory, listen, we may be exiles here. But what peace eternal overflows in knowing we are God's elect exiles. That however the world may put us out, we are, as Peter's last two words affirm, in Christ. What a way to end it. What a way to end it. 
What peace for his weary pilgrims. God's elect exiles cast out are those who are in Christ forever. So, stand firm in the true grace of God. Unbelieving friend, to date, you're not in Christ. And so you're not at peace with God. But you can be. You've now heard what Jesus has done to save hellbound sinners like you and me. In Him only is the grace that invites to glory. Don't reject it now. Don't reject it now. Why will you perish when you can just turn from sin and trust your soul to Jesus and be saved? May God, this God of all grace, call you right now out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He does that, you come and let us know about it. I'd love to chat with you about that. Beloved, our journey through 1 Peter now comes to a close. But our journey together in Christ, to which it speaks, continues on. Let's not mistake the message. Upon Peter's pillars, stand firm in the true grace of God. In the end, recall, when holy living is hard, that we do have a living hope. So don't give up. Because soon enough, our flesh laid down, a cross exchanging for a crown, we will be home. <laughs> and we will see Him whom our souls love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing letter. Oh, it is living. It is active. It is abiding. And we just pray now that you, by your power, would make it to live and act and abide in us all the way home. For your glory we pray it, thanking you for your grace in Jesus. Amen.